3: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. I am your host, Victoria Moran, author of Main Street Vegan. But I would like to start the show today by reading you a tiny little clip from another of my books. This one is called Shelter for the Spirit, Create Your Own Haven in a Hectic World. It was my first Oprah book, so it really means a lot to me. We'll always have a special place in my heart And this is from the chapter on simplifying. It says, I love to go to Susan's house. There's space between the furniture. You can see the wood floors. At Christmas, she can put up a tree without rearranging her living room. There are empty places on the bookshelves for more books. There is room in her house for gifts and guests and possibilities. That's because Susan knows how to simplify. Now, I read that to you for two reasons. The first is to invite you to check out the MainStreetVegan.net blog post for this week. If you're listening at some distant point, you can find that at MainStreetVegan.net as March 21st, 2014. So just check out mainstreetvegan.net slash blog. And the post this week is a guest post from Main Street Vegan Academy graduate Carol Schneider, who is the director of Simple Size Me, a simplification company in South Florida with clients around the country and around the world. And she believes that you can use your veganism as a model for simplifying your entire life. So do check that out. But the other reason that I read you that little bit is that I wanted to introduce you to Susan. She is a real person, Susan Gibbs. She now lives near Duluth, Minnesota. And Susan is, like perhaps you are and certainly like some people that you know, an animal rescuer. She has done this as long as I have known her, and she has done it with great finesse Every animal that Susan has rescued has been treated as a family member, given exquisite care, excellent veterinary services. She lived at one point in an area where people dumped animals, and she took in all of them and gave them this wonderful care. I kept saying to her, Susan, you've got to become a nonprofit so that you can get donations. And she would say, well, yeah, someday, but I'm really busy. Well, what has happened now is that it is necessary that she make her animal family smaller. And anybody who loves animals, you know how absolutely terrifying the thought of that is. So I want to tell you about Susan and about these animals and see if there's anything that you can do to help. As I said, she is in Duluth, Minnesota, so if you're in that part of the world or know anybody in that part of the world or if you just be willing to put this out on your Facebook and your networks where somebody who could help might see it, that would just be grand – the animals who are going to need new families are several lovely dogs, one adorable little kitty, and the most wonderful sheep. Oh, this sheep has such a personality. So you can contact Susan at akia design at q.com. That's akia, A K I A, design at q, just letter q, dot com. Or you can call her, 218 218- Three, four, one, six, eight, three, four. again, that's two, one, eight, three, four, one, six, eight, three, four. And if you can help out Susan and the little critters, that would just be such, such a blessed thing. Thank you so much. And it is interesting that we're talking about a few animals needing a home. On a day that we're going to be talking about lots of animals, I'm going to pre-introduce my first guest because I do have two guests and I want to give both of them plenty of time coming up in the second half of the show. We're going to be speaking with Mark Beckhoff. He's Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's the author of many books. His latest is Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed, The Fascinating Science of Animal Intelligence, Emotions, Friendship, and Conservation. That's going to be fabulous. And we're also in for a fabulous beginning And our next guest has given me such a detailed intro that ordinarily I would just go through slash and burn and find two lines, but his story is so fascinating that I'm going to share quite a bit of it with you before we go to break, and then we will bring him on. This is Alex Pacheco. For starters, Alex has been arrested over 60 times in the line of duty protecting animals. The most popular show on the Animal Channel is Whale Wars. It's about the Sea Shepherd, a ship battling uh, Japanese whale killing ships. Over 30 years ago, Alex worked on their very first whale protection campaign as a crew member on board the Sea Shepherd. He helped fill the bow of the Sea Shepherd with tons of concrete, and they rammed the world's most notorious whale-killing ship, the Sierra. In the end, both the Sea Shepherd and the Sierra were sunk, and Alex was voted Crew Member of the Year. They ought to make a movie about this guy. Alex is widely known as the co-founder of PETA, which New York, Times is called the mover and shaker of the animal rights movement. He served as chairman of PETA for 20 years, where he focused on running investigations, lobbying, and lawsuits. He's also the co-founder of the largest nonprofit animal adoption website in the world, Adopt a Pet, which has over 100,000 animals ready for adoption when the American Medical Association commissioned a Harvard University study how to defeat the, oh, the American Medial Association. I thought that was a typo. I don't know what the American Medical, Medial Association is. Anyway, they commissioned a study called How to Defeat the Animal Rights Movement and described Alex as the movement's folk hero. What a guy. And today... He is still going strong after nearly 40 years of winning victories for animals. You need to look him up. If you don't know what Alex Pacheco looks like after 40 years of working for animals, he looks about 26 and way, way handsome. That's just an aside, maybe a little word for veganism. He has been voted into the Animal Rights Hall of Fame and has been awarded the Peace Abbey Courage of Conscience Award, joining Mother Teresa, Rosa Parks, and other esteemed humanitarians. His current mission is to permanently end the overpopulation of stray dogs and cats worldwide. To do this, he has started a specialized organization called 600 Million Dogs, the cure for animal overpopulation. His plan is to develop a spay food, dog food, that can spay a dog without surgery and then do the same for the 80 million stray cats in the U.S. Is this guy a thinker? I should say, and a doer. And right after these messages, we will be meeting the folk hero of the animal rights movement, Mr. Alex Pacheco. Stay with us.
1: As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. What if you could experience vibrant health?
3: Everybody, welcome back to Main Street Vegan. I have already introduced Alex Pacheco, so now I just get to say, "Hey Alex, welcome to Main Street Vegan."
4: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: Oh, it's wonderful to finally have you. I know we had to do some back and forth. So, your organization that I know about is 600 Million Dogs, but I'm having website confusion. So, here at the very beginning, Tell me about My Dog is on the Pill. Tell me about 600Million.org and tell me where we're supposed to be looking.
4: Mm, well, they all work, they're all functional. They're just uh, nicknames and, uh, for, and shorter versions of the longer versions. But for example, uh, My Dog is on the Pill, that, that'll take you to our main website. Um, and, but that's a program that we have specifically for traditional birth control pills for dogs. And it's, a, it's an easy-to-remember uh, name, so that's one of the reasons we like to use that. But the shortest one to use is just 600 million, 600million.org. And what that's, does that number mean? 600million.org. 600, 600 million represents the number of stray dogs that, uh, that there are around the world on any given day. And those 600 million stray dogs, unfortunately, they reproduce, and they give birth to approximately 1 billion homeless stray puppies every year around the world. And sadly, this cycle continues year after year after year. And um, actually, not only does it continue, but each year, the number of stray dogs around the world increases because the amount of uh, food, because their food supply increases and their food supply is human garbage. So it's a very uh, sad number. But that's we thought we would name the organization after that in uh, to keep their numbers front and center.
3: Yeah, it's so problematic that we just can't comprehend what a number like 600 million means. I think that's sort of like three human Americas of homeless dogs. It's just absolutely overwhelming. So your idea is birth control in the food Mm -hmm. so that dogs can eat themselves sterile. Yes,
4: the, um, we believe we've found uh, a, a cure for the overpopulation problem. Uh, it's, that's the simple way to think about it, because the, um, the overpopulation problem is the number one cause of suffering for dogs and for cats around the world. Because they are overpopulated, uh, it's the number one, source of, number one cause for them being killed and the number one source of their suffering worldwide. Year after year, so we think of it as like a disease, like cancer is for people. Overpopulation is for dogs and cats. So through developing a very special kind of food that can quickly spay the dogs, for example, we'll be able to sterilize millions and millions of dogs very cost effectively, very easily, and um, very quickly and very humanely and be able to get the overpopulation to crash. But, that, but the trick is getting this food, which we, which, we, which we call spay food, finished. And that's why we're, that's our mission right now is to uh, raise the funds to hire more and more scientists to get this spay food completed so that we can get it out into real-life use around the world.
3: Well, I don't think it's as off the wall as some people might think when they hear about it the first time. They're trying to do something similar here in New York City with the rat population. And the last article that I read said they actually had the drug. They were just trying to come up with pellets that could compete taste-wise with bagels and cream cheese. So I I know something like this is being used in, in different contexts. So... This is so exciting, Alex, the idea that there could actually be an end to this problem, not just a little dent or a semi-bigger dent, but an end to it. Why isn't every animal protection organization on the planet rallying to this cause? That's a good
4: question and um, a question that the org- that they should be asked because uh, i uh, it's very... Uh, frustrating to be working on this day in and day out and to not have their support. So, um, it's, I'm, I'm pretty baffled by it. Yeah.
3: Well,
4: this formula, just let me mention, there's so many beautiful features to this, these formulas. Um, and you know, you mentioned about how it's already being developed for rats in New York. The fact is that, uh, birth control for dogs in the form of uh, edible food has existed for over 30 years in the United States. It was first approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the 1970s. And even though it was approved in the 1970s, it's never, ever, ever been made available for sale for anyone to buy or for anyone to use in the United States. And <clears throat> it's another thing that every I feel every animal organization should be up in arms over. Um, but sadly... Uh, it's a lot of silence, but we're, we're not going to rely on drug companies to do this. We're not going to rely on mainstream organizations we're, we, they've all abandoned it pretty much. So we're just going to pick up the pieces and take care of it ourselves because there's such a vast amount of suffering that we can end in our lifetime through, through these techniques that uh, we really have no choice, no moral choice except to pursue it ourselves.
3: Can you tell us a little bit about stray dogs around the world? I think some people listening to this are probably thinking, yeah, well, you train people to get their dogs neutered, end of problem, but it's not that easy.
4: Yes, it's very expensive, and the numbers are staggering. Um, If we start with the United States, in the United States, between publicly funded humane societies, dog pounds, dog catchers, and combined with... Privately spent money on spay neuter surgery and on privately funded humane societies. Every year, it's over a billion dollars. It's a B with a baseball. It's over one billion dollars. Between one billion and two billion American dollars are spent every 12 months just dealing with the overpopulation and the population problem of dogs and cats in the United States. That is obviously a lot of money. Um, and even then, when we're still spending a billion dollars, over a billion a year on this problem, um, we still have to end up killing about 4, 000, or 4 million healthy dogs and cats every year. So now we take the same problem to other countries. Many countries around the world, are, are, they, do, they don't have the budgets to be spending a billion dollars a year on dog and cat population control. So, but they still have a lot of dogs and cats. So, in many many countries around the world, the animals are um, killed in the most inexpensive ways possible, and the most inexpensive methods of killing dogs and cats are also the most inhumane methods. And in a lot of countries, there they we counted we quit counting at sixty. We counted sixty countries. That's six zero countries around the world that do not have any. Laws against cruelty to animals. Um, And so those are countries where dogs are killed in the tens of thousands sometimes by very inhumane methods such as poisoning. And the two most common methods are beating them to death and poisoning them. The two most common methods. Um, And we've seen just, for example, in the recent uh, Olympics, just a few months ago, where up to 40,000, 50,000 stray dogs uh, will be beaten to death over the period of about one or two weeks in cities around the world just before high-profile events take place. Pretty much, this has happened in China many times, it's happened in Brazil, it's happened in Europe, uh, it just happened in Russia. It, it, it's, it's, it's happening in many countries around the world. Um, And in the old days, they didn't used to bother to go and round up and kill 20,000 at a time because there wasn't that much TV coverage. But now when there's a lot of TV coverage, the cities are very PR sensitive and they don't want a whole bunch of – they don't want the cameras or the reporters talking about all the starving dogs running around. So the cities in these these areas will pay their government employees to go out and kill – Ten, twenty, thirty thousand 20, 30,000 stray dogs in a week or two. And that's usually done by beating them to death and poisoning. So that's the, those, that's the target population of, of animals who we desperately want to help because they are uh, suffering the brunt of it. Not only do they um, have a very violent death, but they have a very painful life um, in many of these countries. They live a lifetime of hunger Uh, covered with skin diseases. They never see a veterinarian. Uh, They're hit by cars, but yet they survive. And then they live the rest of their life crippled. It's just one horror after another. Um, And anyone who's traveled to third world countries, including Mexico, for example, uh, all you have to do is go to Mexico City to see this. In Mexico City, for example, there are 3 million stray dogs on any given day in just one city. And that's about the same number of dogs that we kill nationwide in the United States. About 3 million just in one city alone. That's to give, uh, to give you some idea of how serious this problem is and how out of control it is.
3: Wow, but we need we spay gotta, food.
4: <laughs> the good news is I believe we have a way to solve this problem in the next several years. So we're very excited. So how,
3: how far along are you and what can we do to help?
4: Well, the good news is that the more funds there are, the faster we'll finish it. And the reason is very simple: that more funds we have available, uh, the more scientists we can hire, such as chemists, and put them to work full time on this. Right now, we just we're so short on funding that we only have part time scientists working on this. Um, so we believe that if we had, for example, half a million dollars, so that we could have four full-time scientists working on this full-time that with in less than two years, we will have the finished product. And that's our best estimate. And it could be less time. It could be more time, but um, the big drawback is lack of funding. We're a small grassroots nonprofit. And we're literally doing the work that a billion dollar drug company should be doing. And we're doing the work that, you know, that the multi-million dollar uh, mainstream organization should be doing, but they're not. So it's up to us, uh, everyone listening to this call, this broadcast, for us to uh, pool our resources, put our heads together, and uh, marshal our forces and, and take care of our, take care of it ourselves. So we need volunteers uh, to help with everything from uh, fundraising to helping uh, uh, maintain the website. To helping with all kinds of stuff, uh, helping recruit and find more chemists, other all kinds of scientists, veterinarians. Um, everybody can help in one way or another. Uh, there's no question about that.
3: So how does somebody find you who wants to help?
4: Well, the shortest website is six hundred million dot org. That's six zero zero million.org. Six zero zero million dot org, six hundred million dot org. Okay. Or my dog is on
3: the dot com okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, that 's sweet. People will remember that, so I wanted to ask you about a, a related topic i 'm thinking more about the horrible disease of rabies than i 've ever thought about it in my life i don 't know if you know my daughter, Adair, is a licensed wildlife rehabilitator and recently went through the rabies shots and all that so that she can work with rabies vector species. I didn't realize that around the world, this is not only a far more prevalent disease among humans than we would ever think over here, but it may just be the worst way to die there is. So what's the connection between that disease and all these stray dogs worldwide?
4: Um, There's a direct connection. And um, first of all, a thing about rabies is if you go online and just Google Human deaths from rabies, for example. You can quickly see uh, documentary films made by doctors for other doctors where they film human patients dying from rabies. And it is... Everyone agrees, it's undisputed, that dying by rabies is one of the worst ways to possibly die. Um, And the second scary thing is that... And this you can see, if you visit the World Health Organization website, you'll see their fact sheets on rabies. And one of the things they say early on is, by the time you realize you have rabies, it is incurable. I should repeat that. By the time you realize you have rabies, by the time there are symptoms, you cannot be cured. Um, And so that's why whenever somebody gets bitten by a dog, they... Immediately go in for uh, examination or treatment for rabies. Immediately, even if they don't have rabies, because as I mentioned, by the time you know you've got it, it's too late. So, anyway, the number one cause, the number one source of all the human deaths from rabies around the world, the the number one source uh, is is the stray dog population. To put it another way. 99% of all the people who die from rabies around the world, they all got the rabies from stray dogs. So So
3: this is an animal rights and a human rights issue, and we all ought to be going to 600million.org and learning more about it and helping you guys out.
4: Yes. (laughs) This is another beautiful thing about these formulas that we're working on is that not only will it break the cycle of suffering for a billion stray dogs and cats every year, but it'll also help us prevent the suffering of the 55,000 people who die from rabies every year. And there's probably far more than 55,000 who die, but those are the 55,000 that are reported. So these formulas will help save human lives, reduce uh, and prevent human suffering, and help save animal lives and prevent animal suffering. So it's a, it's a win-win-win for on a humanitarian basis.
3: Well, as it always is, you know, every time I learn more about animal protection, more about veganism, there's always another side to it that helps humans as well. And I, I just hope that more and more people are waking up to see that when you do good for somebody, you do good for everybody. Amazing. We're just figuring this out in 2014. Alex Pacheco, God bless you. Thank you so much for all you do. The website is 600. You do that like a numeral, 600 million dot millionorg Learn more, do something, help out. And thanks so much, Alex. May Thank we you. get this done before you know it.
0: Thank you very much.
3: Okay, take good care. And everybody else, stay with us. We are going to be coming up with our next guest, ethologist Mark Beckhoff. Mark Beckhoff has published 25 books and more than 800 popular scientific essays in the field of animal behavior, cognitive ethology, and compassionate conservation. We're going to be finding out what he knows right after this from Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world.
1: What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Amazon.com or your favorite bookseller.
0: Somewhere, tucked away in the Unity Library archives in Unity Village, Missouri, you can find a secret treasure. They are the scripts from Unity co founder Charles Fillmore's early days on broadcast radio. The teachings of Unity's founders, almost 100 years old. Now, for the first time in history, you can hear them through the power of the Internet. Join Bob Brock every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, for Unity Classic Radio, words from our past. the voice of an awakening world.
1: Thank you for tuning in for Main Street Vegan. Here is your host, Victoria Moran.
3: Welcome back, everybody. You ready to save dogs and cats and everybody else? I am. I'm so excited. I love getting to do this show and meeting all these people who have so much inspiring information that makes me want to take more and more action, which is really what it's all about. So I have introduced and given you the background on our next guest, Mark Beckhoff, author of Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed, and he's right here ready to talk to us. How do you do, Mark Beckhoff?
5: I'm doing great. It's 70 degrees here in Boulder so I'm happy.
3: Oh good. Well, that means it's it's all moving eastward so I'll be happy with you. So you know about what makes animals tick. Why is that important for the rest of us to know something about too?
5: Well, I think that excuse me. It's important to know what's going on in the heads and the hearts of other animals because it really informs the way people uh, think about other animals and and treat them. I mean, I and many people think that individual animals have what we call inherent value, intrinsic value. I mean, they're valuable because they're alive. But a lot of people base their judgments on the way um, they treat other animals by if they think they're smart, if they think they're sentient, you know, or emotional, and so... That's one reason. The other reason, of course, is just to learn about the fascinating animals with whom we share our magnificent planet.
3: And they are fascinating. Sometimes I feel a little bit guilty when I'm just Mm -hmm. in awe. Just today, Farm Sanctuary launched the sweetest little minute-long cartoon about how good pigs are at playing video games, that they Mm -hmm. beat chimps and three-year-olds. And... I just want to say to the whole world, look how smart pigs are. Do not eat that bacon. (laughs) Even though, even if they weren't smart, we shouldn't be eating the bacon. And yet there's something in us as humans that we really admire the idea that somebody else has some smarts.
5: Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons that I love studying animal cognition, you know, if you will, um, the minds of other animals and their emotional lives, and why I I love to share that information, because it really doesn't help, it it informs people. And then, you know, something I always say, and it's an outgrowth of my research and, and a lot of other people's work is, it's not a matter of, you know, what these animals are, it's who they are. So it's not what you eat, it's who you eat, it's not what you wear, it's who you wear, if you're choosing to you know, have animals and animal products in your life. And that also is a game changer, I've been told. And referring to other animals is who really comes from the study of their minds. You know, how smart they are, how emotional they are, how moral they are. And um, so, yeah, I'm amazed every day at what we're learning about these amazing beings.
3: Well, that's a fascinating language change <laughs> that we can start to make. Whoa. Beef. Yeah. It's I mean, who's
5: for dinner. It works. I, I gave a talk um, in Vienna last year and six women came up after and said they would never, ever again eat an animal. And, and I don't mean that in a self-serving way. They had never thought about that, that, you know, when we're eating animals, we're eating suffering, we're eating, we're eating pain We're and we're eating suffering and we're eating a who. And it, you know when I, I I mean I think it's my idea I don't know maybe other people have said it before I not I had not heard it until a few years ago and I was taking a hike with one of my friends and he said to me something like you always write about animals who do this not animals that or animals which and the joke was that in a book I wrote called The Animal Manifesto I told a story where I was sitting next to a woman who worked for Microsoft on a plane And I was editing something, and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I can't believe it that these word processing programs want you to change who and whom to that and which for animals. And she said, oh, what program are you using? And I said, I'm using Microsoft Word. And she said, oh, I work for them. (laughs) And so I basically talked to her about it. She said she would look into it. Maybe she did. I mean, fact is, four years later, they haven't changed. But it is a it, it's a game changer because the pronoun who, you know, really makes you think of the sentient being about whom you're talking. And it, it really, it just boils my blood when people say the dog that did this. And then I have people who talk about the people that did this. And I'm thinking, well, if they're using that for humans, then I can understand why they use, them, use it for non-humans.
3: Yes. Or or it. The, the or animal. It. Exactly. It. I I would guess guess a gender, you know, do like the French.
0: (laughs) Give everybody a
3: gender for sake of being. But it's (laughs) funny that you talk about the who and the whom because in the notes to the copy editor on every book I've ever written, I've always made a note that even though I understand that, according to Chicago Manual of Style, it is an error, I choose to be in error because it yes. is in truth to allow these beings to be beings.
5: Yep. That's I, I actually, fun. I do the same thing. And in the fact, I almost pulled an essay recently um, because they wouldn't change it. And I said, you know, a month down the pike or a year, someone's going to read this and they're going to attribute it to me, not to you. And so therefore I can't sanction publishing you know, something that refers to an animal as a that. And I won, if you will. I mean, uh-huh. I didn't look at it as a battle. I basically said, you know, I don't want my name associated with objectifying other animals. And so...
3: It, it's true. Um, and the more it. we do it, the more it will change. When I went to school, you always had to refer back to the, the he. And now it has become acceptable to say they just because women have said, no, we don't yeah. want to be he's. And it's taken, what, 40, 50 years, not a huge yeah. amount of time, and, and it'll happen with animals, and it'll make a difference. Now, you have another phrase that's interesting. What do you mean by dead cow walking?
5: Well, <clears throat> that came to me <coughs> at a protest when I thought, you know, the, there's a, a very famous movie called, I think, Dead Cow. The dead Man Walking? I can't even dead remember. Dead Man Walking,
3: Sean... yes. Written, the book was written by a nun who was yes. the client of Patty Brightman, who is exactly. a vegan and who's been a guest on this show. So exactly. it all comes and together. Yeah, I
5: thought of that, and it was the same thing Dead Cow Walking. It's this long, ponderous, painful, heinous, reprehensible, brutal journey that these animals make, you know, from the almost the day they're born, loaded on a truck to the slaughterhouse. And, you know, people forget that the life of a dairy cow, a dairy pig, I mean, a factory farmed animal is horrific from basically day one. It's not just when they arrive at the place where they're killed. And so I just sort of thought of the entire process as, um, you know, really dead cow walking, dead pig walking, to once again call attention to the fact that these animals are basically born to die and be used for meals that nobody really needs.
3: That's right. So, and to die in adolescence, prime of life. Ah, I I, I, I like that and, and wish that um, it would become obsolete. But you're so right. It is now dead cow walking. So, speaking of that end of life for the cow, the pig, the sheep, so many people hold in highest admiration, Temple Grandin, and I believe she has in certainly a welfarist sort of way, made that end of life somewhat better for those few cows who are able to enjoy, enjoy, (laughs) who are able to partake in a sort of... Killing that is less horrific than the kind that I viewed the day that I spent in a slaughterhouse. But yes. what do you think of Miss Grandin's work overall and her point of view on factory farms?
5: <clears throat> well, my excuse me, my take on it, and I want to be fair. And I, I mean, I think there's an essay in the book called "My Beef" with Temple Grandin, and I really named it that just because has you know if somebody says to me, "Has Temple Grandin made the life?" of some dairy cows better, then yes, I believe she has made the life of some dairy cows better. But I wanna phrase it because that sum could be one thousandth of 1% of them. And the other thing I wanna say is making it better doesn't mean that it's okay. Making it better doesn't mean that it's ethical or humane. It's just maybe the life of a few cows is better because of what she calls it, the stairway to heaven, which I just drives me crazy. (laughs) It's a stairway to hell really. Um, And so what do I think about her work? Well, I wish that she would advocate vegetarianism and veganism, which she won't do. Um, I've given back to back talks with her. You know, she'll say that people have to eat meat. She says she has to eat meat. And, you know, Frankly my take on it is she's making a lot of money doing this and she could still make all the money she she wants and needs, but I wish that in her agenda she would say, Okay, at least for now people are going to eat meat and they're going to eat factory farmed animals. I'm an advocate for them not doing it, and while we're phasing it out, I'm working to make the lives of those animals better. She doesn't do that. She does no. She's, you know, and so that's just my take on it, because I, I always want to be fair. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's a cow out there who had a better life. You know, the example I use so that people get it is, you know, you can compare two gas cuzzling cars. You can compare, you know, a Rolls Royce and a Cadillac and you go, well, the Rolls Royce gets better gas mileage than, gas mileage than the Cadillac. But that doesn't mean it's good gas mileage; it just means it's better than another gas guzzler, and so that that's my take.
3: right, yeah I, I would agree with you. I, I heard um, Temple Grandin speak, and afterwards she did a q and A. Q&A. The person doing the questions was a, a colleague of, of yours, another ethologist, um, Dr. Jonathan Balcombe. And he did a great job of it, but it was so clear that he was really having to tiptoe around because mm-hmm. there are certain certain areas she just didn't want to talk about. So
5: Yeah, you're... I don't... Uh, I'm sorry. Go
3: no, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I mean, I,
5: I did the same with her not too long, a couple, maybe two years ago or three years ago on the campus here at University of Colorado, and I decided I wasn't going to tiptoe around because... She was presenting data on, you know, the horrific efficiency, if you will, of bolting animals. You know, people think that these animals walk in, they're scared out of their minds. They've smelled and they've heard and they've seen their friends and families getting killed. It's not like they're isolated. And, you know, they're just scared out of their minds. And. You know, people think, oh, well, it'll be over, you know, as they go down and they get bolted or electrocuted or whatever happens to them. No, that's not the case. It's a very inefficient process. And that's why I say, well, maybe there's a cow on that stairway to heaven who doesn't show as much stress as another cow. But I guarantee you that the least stressed cow is significantly more stressed than a cow who's not there, so <laughs> you know, that's that's my take on it and i I mean I've said to her many times, you know I wish that you would advocate for a vegetarian or a vegan diet start somewhere she won't do it and uh, so, you know that's my beef that's what I call it my beef with her i i yeah that's i I could keep going and I'll basically be saying the same thing, so yeah.
3: You know. Well, uh, there there are many of us speaking out for vegan, veganism and vegetarianism, so we'll just speak a little bit louder. Now, I have to ask about the title of your latest book, Why Dogs Hump uh, and Bees Get Depressed. Okay, why did do dogs hump?
5: Well, we picked that title, obviously. It catches attention, but also because it's a great example of a behavioral activity of some phenomenon for which there's not one single or necessarily a simple answer. So people will go, oh, I know why dogs hump, because it's sexual. They do it when they're courting or mating. Yes, they do it when they're courting or mating. They also do it when they're playing. They may do it in a social interaction to dominate another animal, and they may just do it for fun. I've seen dogs, you know, I've... <laughs> I've spent thousands of hours watching dogs and wolves and coyotes play. And sometimes they're like kids, they just wind up on top of another animal and some reflex may produce the mounting and the humping. So that's why we picked it ultimately for those two good reasons. And it allows me then to explain to people that it, when you watch an animal do something, you have to be very careful in you know, saying what caused that behavior, because it may not be something that's obvious. So that that's the spiel for the title of the book.
3: Okay. And then the second part, why do bees get depressed? Well, I, we use that
5: because there's a story in there about some research that's been done that shows that you can make bees depressed and pessimists. And once again, some of the research is a little bit abusive, but this research was, it was borderline, but, the important thing there is that the bees showed the same neurochemical changes as they became pessimists and depressed as do humans. And from a biological point of view, that's phenomenally interesting because bees have relatively small brains. They only have around a million neurons and they're tiny brains. Bees also learn can learn certain tasks that chimpanzees and other animals can't do. So I wanted to call attention to the fact that bees are just not just bees. You know, ants are not just ants and cockroaches are not just cockroaches. And once again, to expand people's knowledge about the amazing animals who we share our world with.
3: Mm. Well, and this reminds me, of course, of of one of your your formal books, The Emotional Lives of Animals, because Mm -hmm. it's one thing to get past, uh, who, who was the fellow that said animals were automata, um
0: Descartes,
3: yes, Yeah. to come to, okay, they're sentient, they feel we shouldn't hurt them, but to then get this other dimension that they also have rich emotional lives, that's really something.
5: Yeah, that was you know, Jeremy Bentham, who said it wasn't, you know, can they think or can they talk, but can they suffer? Exactly. And then, you know, Descartes looked at animals as, you know, it's basically machines, you know, that, you know, he envisioned dogs when they were screaming in pain as just a bunch of, you know, systems of pulleys and that were making noise. I mean, um, not, not, I always say not a well man. <laughs>
3: Yes, yes. Well, thank goodness we're past that. Now, I just want to shift here in our last couple of minutes because I know that in addition to being a scholar and an author, you're an athlete. So what do you do athletically and how does your diet help or hinder that?
5: Well, um, I do a lot of different sports. I've raced bicycles for decades and I won some big races in Europe in the 80s, um, Becoming vegetarian and vegan has had – when I say no effect, maybe it's had a positive effect. I really can't say that it has, but certainly it hasn't had a negative effect. So when I was doing long stage races 30-something years ago, you know, I would, I would always have my token cheeseburger maybe once or twice a week. And then when I decided I didn't want to eat animals um, – I frankly noticed no change in my cycling. And, you know, sometimes I was riding four or 500 miles a week and stuff. So has it helped me? I I don't know. Has it hurt me? Absolutely not. But it definitely, I feel great. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know how else to say it, to be honest with you. Um, Well,
3: I think that's saying that it's helped or something has helped because you said you were doing a lot of the racing in the eighties. That was quite a while ago. So the yes. fact that you still feel great and you're still athletic, I would say you're doing something right. Quite a few yeah, things, no, right? I, I
5: feel great. I mean, I in fact, I just did a 50-mile bike ride this morning, and I get out a lot for century 100-mile rides with, you know, groups of people who range in age from 20 to 75 or 80. I mean, I'm I, um you know, Boulder's kind of like that, and there's other places, but, you know, it's a very outdoors community, um, but – there's no there's no doubt that it it I feel great and I and and and, and I think it's you know, I mean I, I always like to say as a scientist, do I know this? Do I know this? You know, I've got good blood levels, I've got low blood pressure, low pulse, and um it's gotta be somewhat diet related. I mean it's I know it has to be.
3: That and as my new book will say, some really good karma. <laughs> Um, Not being a scientist, I get to say things like that.
5: No, no, no. Oh, no, no. Believe me, I you probably, if you've read some of my other books and articles, you know I've got that side. No, I believe in karma, and I believe in spiritual things, and I believe I do. I mean, I I very deeply think science and spirituality can live together. I was part of a um, huge international project for a few years called Science and the Spiritual Quest. And I um, and I, I loved it. And so, you know what? I think there's good karma. I think you receive what you give. We've all done things in life that we wish we didn't do. We've all said things we wish we haven't hadn't said. But I think as you as you live, you learn from those things and you hope you hope to just stop doing them. Maybe that's um. the best.
3: Bless you. Thank you so much. I would love to have you on again. The book is Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed by Mark Bekoff. His website is mark, M-A-R-C, B-E-K-O-F-F dot. He has another website with Jane Goodall, and that is ethologicalethics.org. Ethological, like ethology, the study of the behavior of all the beautiful animals with whom we share this planet. Thank you so much, Mark Betkoff. Thank you, Alex Pacheco, 600million.org. Next week, Dr. Alan Immerman with the Immerman Files. Did you know that they knew stuff about health and veganism way before 1980 when they started putting it online? And we're going to learn all that next week. In the meantime, God bless you and eat your veggies.
1: 1 p.m. Eastern on Affirmative Prayer, activating the power of yes. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
6: Inspiration only takes a moment. We invite you to focus your attention inward with these words from Elizabeth Searle Lamb. This is a new day. Lead your conscious mind to that still haven of your soul where your indwelling Christ opens wide the doorway of your heart. At once, mind, soul, and body, you are flooded with the light and love of God. You are lifted high above this earthly plane and filled with the radiance of spirit. Send this love and light on to those whom you hold dear so that it may uplift heal and comfort them as you send this radiance on you are filled with a new sense of god's power and you release this power to the whole world to uplift guide and bless all people a day's tasks await you but god is with you and with god's help all shall be done perfectly
1: this meditative moment is brought to you by unity